Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to Data Bytes number two, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, uh, kindly supported by RHE Global. I'm Gavin Freegar, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government, where I'm responsible for our work on data and digital government, and I hope you're all having a better day than Gavin Williamson, who's just been <laughs> sacked, uh, for those of you who hadn't heard. Um, how many of you came to our first Data Bytes event out of interest? Put your hands up. Excellent. That's really reassuring. Welcome back. Uh, those of you who've not been to a Databytes event before, put your hands up. Welcome. Um, I very much hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk you through the, um, the sort of format and how it's all going to work shortly. Um, a bit of housekeeping before we get started properly. We are on the record tonight. Uh, we're being live-streamed, so hello to anybody watching us from elsewhere. I know we had a big audience in Cardiff last time, and I think we've got some people in Newcastle uh, tonight, so a particular shout-out to you. Um, the hashtag, if you'd like to join in on Twitter, is hashtag IFGDataBytes, and you can also follow at IFGEvents. And for those of you in the room, here are the Wi-Fi details. The network's IFGGuest, the username is IFG, and the password is Visitor. So shortly, I will tell you how the format works, for those of you who have not been before. I'll introduce this, uh, this evening's fantastic lineup of speakers, but also just want to talk to you a little bit quickly about um, the IFG and what we do with data. Hopefully, some of you have come across some of our previous work. We spend a lot of time visualising and analysing data uh, about uh, government in Whitehall Monitor, uh, about public services and performance tracker, about parliament in Parliamentary Monitor, and we've also done lots of data-driven things on government procurement, and most recently, the effect of Brexit on Whitehall as well. We've also made various recommendations about things that government should publish that it doesn't at the moment. Now, at the last one of these, I uh, showed one of our charts about ministerial resignations, and I very smugly <laughs> <laughs> included this one today, and I was going to say, well, actually, we've only had one since the last one. We had two on the day of the event last time round. And, you know, we, we're going to have to update this in real time at some point. Um, and, in fact, the most significant thing, so this one shows you all of the um, resignations uh, outside of reshuffles. There is a version where it's only people who've resigned over political or policy differences. And the most significant thing that happened with that chart uh, between the last event and this one was um, somebody decided to stitch it. Uh, Heidi Mitchell on, on Twitter, which is um, rather wonderful. Hello, thank you very much. I have to say, we absolutely loved it. We were literally in stitches. Sorry. You're going to enjoy the rest of the evening, I can tell. Um, threading seamlessly from data stitchification uh, to some more data visualisation, something that we've done recently that I just want to tell you about. Um, we've been involved with the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford and um, the, uh, supported by the UK Civil Service on Insize, which is the International Civil Service Effectiveness Index. Uh, if you go to uh, bsg.ox.ac.uk slash Insize, you can delve into much more detail, play with the interactive charts. Um, but we've also got something coming up in the next few days that I wanted to tell you about. Um, my brilliant colleagues Aaron, Akash and Lucy have been working on a special report looking at 20 years of devolution. It's called Devolution at 20. Uh, here is a sneak preview. Um, it shows you sort of le where legislation has been passed about the various nations of the UK. Um, and you can sort of see the stories of Scotland, uh, sort of after 1999, passing its own legislation. Wales, it took a bit longer. And Northern Ireland, we've sort of gone back to Westminster. So it's amazing the stories that a, a chart like that can, can show you. Um, again, we will have more on that in the next few days. This will be published at the end of the week. Next Tuesday, there's a launch event. And we've actually got Mark Drakeford, uh, the First Minister of Wales, speaking here next week as well. So do go to our website and sign up for those. And it's funny, there's a bit of a Welsh theme tonight, inadvertently, because Aaron, who's leading this work, is Welsh. I'm Welsh, 
RHE Global, our sponsors tonight are Welsh, and there's a really important piece of Home Nations data visualisation that we were hoping to include at Devolution at 20, but we couldn't quite fit it in, and it's the Men's Six Nations <laughs> final table. Um, you can see Wales at the top there. Um, we've also got a version which shows you how far ahead of everybody else we were. I could go on. How to alienate 95% of your audience in three slides. Um, but we don't just analyse data at the Institute, we're also uh, concerned with supporting government uh, to do a lot more, to use it more effectively, which I think is one of the biggest challenges of government in the modern age. And that's one of the reasons why we're holding these Data Bytes events, um, to bring together people working on very different types of data across government, to show people who don't work on data and digital what better data actually means, and to put best practice and interesting projects on the record, which is what we're going to be doing tonight, as we did last time out. So how does this event work, hopefully? Um, it's not a typical IFG event. You're going to be seeing four presentations on data projects. Each speaker will have eight minutes to present. Eight minutes. Uh, you will see there is a clock on stage there. Now, why eight minutes? Well, I went into a very good um, explanation of why last time, and my colleague who was manning the IFG event's Twitter account clearly didn't agree and just said, why eight minutes? It's a long story. Um, obviously, bytes are the key uh, sort, of bit, uh, sort of unit of information. There are eight bits in a byte. There are eight minutes in a data byte. Uh, we love jokes like that here at the Institute for Government. Uh, so each speaker will have eight minutes to present. That will then be followed by eight minutes of Q&A, so questions from you in the audience. Again, I will start the clock ticking as soon as the first questioner starts asking the first question. Remember, you will be on the record. Give us your name and where you're from. Keep your question short. And uh, yes, we'll sort of keep it moving quite briskly from there. Once we've had the eight minutes of presentation and the eight minutes of questions, we will then move on to the next speaker. We'll get through four presentations. Please do join us on the landing afterwards for drinks and nibbles. If you'd like to learn more about our last event where we had the ONS talking about real-time economic data, we had MHCLG, Mahoka logo, I'm determined to make that stick, talking about better data infrastructure and housing. We had Vocalink. Uh, talking about detecting financial fraud, and we had Ofgem talking about how they do data internally. Uh, you can go to that link there. But now for tonight's lineup, we've got a fantastic uh, sort of smorgasbord of data projects for you tonight. First, we'll be hearing from Alex Babrowska from uh, the Department for Work and Pensions, uh, talking about skills demand data as a digital service. I spoke to one of Alex's colleagues about this project a few weeks ago. It's so interesting, we could have filled all four slots with it. So very much looking forward to that, and no pressure. <laughs> We'll then be hearing from Sarah Gates and Sam Roberts about the data ethics framework. Then Simon Worthington will be talking about personal data in government and why it's completely broken. <laughs> and then we'll be hearing from our sponsors tonight, RHE Global, talking about uh, their noise app, Martin Pilkington and Hugh Williams, so from Keridigian. So again, that Welsh theme is inadvertently strong tonight. A date for your diaries, uh, 4th of June will be the next IFG Data Bytes event. We've got a brilliant lineup of speakers already, actually. But if you would be interested in pitching a presentation, come and grab me or email me afterwards. We are looking for sponsors um, to keep this series running. Uh, and what better audience and what better subject than, you know, the future of government in the 21st century? If you are interested in supporting um, the future events, please do drop david.trepepi-lewis at instituteforgovernment.org.uk a line, 
And can I speak slowly for 10 seconds to hit the zero exactly on point? I'm not sure I can. Um, but thank you very much uh, for joining us this evening. And um, without further ado, I will introduce Alex. Endearing, I think, is the word. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Alex Bobrovska. I work for DWP Digital, where we have designed a digital service bringing skills demand data to local government. Now, why have we done this? Um, the need for this service arises from the fact that local government need to understand which skills and job titles are in demand and how digital they are in their local area in order to make informed decisions about training. Um, this training needs to give people the right skills to fill local jobs, both the ones that exist right now, but also the jobs that will exist in the future. And they also need to provide people with enough digital skills to allow them to participate in the increasingly digital economy. Now, although this is a local issue, there's a number of central government departments looking to tackle it. One of them is DCMS. They've got their local digital skills partnerships, which uh, help deliver targeted digital skills training. And at DWP, we've got our labour market strategy, where we recognise that with appropriate training, we can help more people into work and we can help more people progress into better employment. So we collaborated with DCMS to create a digital information service for local government. We started off with a discovery, so we looked at what is possible to do with the data that we have. We purchased a data set from a job aggregation website called the Zuna, and that data set contains over 65 million job ads posted over the last four years. That contains over 6,000 unique skills, 5,000 unique job titles. Being a, a team of data scientists, we looked at what cool stuff we can do with the data. We came up with clustering, entropy, outlier detection, recommendation engine, just to name a few. On the other side of the coin, um, we looked at what our users actually require. So we identified our users as local enterprise partnerships or LEPs and local authorities because these are the institutions which shape local economy by influencing employers and training providers um, to, to put on the right training to give people the right skills. And they can do that by providing them with evidence from an information service. So we asked them how they've been influencing their stakeholders so far. We discovered that technical ability varies not only between lab and lab, but also on an individual level within lab. And also data use is very inconsistent between institutions. And so we've seen examples of using just open data, as well as commissioning third party research, um, as well as sending out their own surveys to employers, which can be flawed when the surveys are only sent out to the major employers and so SMEs get missed out. In the overlap of, between what is possible and what is required, we placed our design. And so we've designed a place-based application where all the uh, insights and analytics are tailored to the user's chosen place. Due to the varied technical ability, we decided to put the analytics behind the scenes. So for example, um, boiling down 6,000 skills to 20 categories via a clustering algorithm appears to the user in the form of a drop-down box. And we're also showcasing insights. So right away, we're giving users uh, information about what's interesting and unique about their chosen area, while also giving them the opportunity to explore the data themselves. While we were busy building the data prototype, our user researchers kept gathering feedback and iterating design with the users that allowed us to determine which information is useful and cut out all the unnecessary clutter. Um, it also allowed us to discover that they would like to see some additional context, such as, for example, economic activity rates data, and it allowed us to iterate some of our visuals to make sure that they are fit for purpose. So now I will try to show you a live demo. Um, 
of the application. There we go. Um, just to let you know, this is an alpha prototype, which means that everything we can scrap everything in this application if the user feedback suggests that we should. And also, this is a proof of concept, which means that we've been designing things to show that it's possible rather than to show that this is the, way, the best way to do it. So after you've read, read the blurb about what the service does, we're asked to um, supply a place that we're interested in. So we're going to go for the Northeast Lab, because that's where I live. There we go. Um, right away, we're giving an interesting fact. So this is, again, um, behind this sits outlier detection, and this is giving our user immediately a, a kind of interesting insight. So customer service advisor roles have fallen um, compared to uh, on last year compared to other labs. So as a lab user, I can think, if I've got training in this area, I might, be want, I might want to dial it down because the scale is um, falling in demand. Um, if we scroll down, oh, this is very fast. There we go. If we scroll down, um, we see the five, five skills that are in most demand um, in the Northeast Lab and also the five skills that have grown the most over the last year. So again, this is immediately giving our users uh, five or ten areas that they can be focusing on when deciding where to put on training. As I said, when we click through, we give uh, the users an opportunity to explore the data themselves. So this is a very large table that contains every single skill that appeared on the job ad in the Northeast over the last month. Um, so the drop-down that I was talking about here, there's 20 categories. Um, powerful clustering algorithm, algorithm sits behind this, but the user doesn't have to see that. They're not bombarded with that, with that information. On the other hand here, um, what we've done um, as well is uh, to every skill we've assigned a level of um, digitensity, which is a word that I made up for it. Um, <laughs> um, Again, this is a drop-down box, but in reality what we're doing is we're matching the skills to Wikipedia and analyzing the text and Wikipedia articles to determine how digital the skill is. So if we look at highly digital skills, um, whoop, live demos never work. There we go. Um, so if you look at highly digital skills, as a lab user, I can see right away that this skill advertising is highly digital, which is something that might be surprising to people, which means that if I'm thinking about putting on training in advertising, I might want to pair it with some digital training as well to give people a more well-rounded set of skills if they're thinking about that career. If I'm trying to convince my stakeholders to put on that training in the Northeast, I'll need some more evidence. And so this page gives us a tailored view of evidence behind advertising in the Northeast, so very kind of specialized. We see that the demand is high. We see exactly how many vacancies appeared, appeared last month. We've got the salary range and transferability. So again, we're giving people words, but behind this is a number, which is the entropy of that skill. We've got a time series, so we can show our stakeholders exactly what's been happening to the demand for that skill over time, and we can compare it to the national average, which is the gray line over here. And we've also got a chart that shows us that how the demand distributes over component local authorities in our lab. So if we're trying to decide where exactly in our area we should put that training, um, we can see that Newcastle-upon-Tyne has got the highest demand, so it's probably there that we should be providing that training. Down at the bottom, we've got uh, something that came out of our recommendation engine work. So we've got five jobs that require this skill and five related skills. Um, so again, this is something that can help our users explore the kind of skills landscape in, in this kind of subject area if they want to um, pair some training together. So these are just some um, features of our prototype. Now just in terms of next steps, um, we are gathering feedback and we are iterating with our users. Um, so this includes um, fixing bugs because obviously there's going to be bugs, um, but also putting in new features and putting in additional data um, that they request. 
In terms of a more strategic view, it turns out it, it's not just DCMS and DWP that care about giving people the right skills for the jobs that exist and will exist. DFE are also looking at that for their skills advisory panels policy. Um, and so we are now talking about taking this project forward as a collaboration of three departments to build a single application that aligns to all of these policies and fulfills um, all of the user needs. Thank you, and I look forward to answering your questions and breathing a little bit. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Alex uh, got us off to the best possible start. Um, once I have set that to go, uh, who would like to ask questions? I'm going to take them in sort of groups of three. Again, tell us who you are, where you're from. Keep it relatively short because it's your time and everybody else's that you'll be wasting. Um, so I've got a question down here, um, a question there as well, and um, we've got one in the front. So if we go here, there, and there. Thank you. Um, if you're in the room next door, by the way, and you'd like to ask a question, Please come to the door uh, during the next round. Hi, uh, I'm Emma from Snook. Um, I wanted to ask a cheeky two-part question. Firstly, um, I think I understand that the service is designed for people in local authorities and training providers to use. Is um, that right? It's for local enterprise partnerships and local authorities to influence the training providers. Right. I wondered, my question is, I wondered if you'd thought about it as a service for end users. Um, and if you've explored that at all. And then I also wondered how you decided what interesting facts to show people. Like, how did you design that content? Brilliant, thank you. Uh, if we go to the gentleman there. Uh, James Kidner from Improbable. Um, congratulations, fascinating story and, and elegantly presented. Can you give, this is a rather prosaic question, but can you give us some sense of how long it's taken you to develop this, how many people involved, and roughly what it cost? Thank you. And a uh, question down here as well. Hi, thanks. Uh, thanks for that. Um, John Corrible, BI Manager, Oxfordshire County Council. We have got some experience of using data around vacancy adverts to track shortages. Um, how did you deal with um, two particular problems, one of which is potentially exaggerating skill shortages because the harder it is to recruit to a job, the more outlets you advertise it through, and the second of which is exaggerating the prevalence of jobs which are high turnover because they get advertised more often but there aren't actually more people doing them. Thank you very much. Okay, so the first question was about um, designing for our end users. So everything we've been doing is essentially just for our end users. So if we had designed this application as just a team of data scientists, it would have looked a lot different. It would have been a lot of fancy charts and a lot of clicking through and a lot of kind of analytics and stuff. Um, but our users didn't want that. We were, that's why we had on board an interaction designer and a really brilliant user researcher. And they were both a really brilliant team that kind of allowed us to um, really shape the application based on what the users actually need. And we were cutting out things that even though we thought were really cool, um, the users didn't find useful, so there's no place for them in our application. Sorry, I think you misunderstood my question. I meant like the common person on the street to use it. So I imagined the use case of like if I'm wanting to move out of London and I want to understand like where my job is available mm -hmm. to do, I just wondered if you could explore other use cases. Um, yes, so we have, have thought about this, but because this is just an alpha stage at the moment, we want to focus on, at this particular purpose and prove this concept. And if we prove this concept that this works with local authorities and labs, then uh, we can take this forward and we can, we can use it in a variety of different ways. So we're also currently looking at using it internally within the department with some kind of internal data. So it's a, it's a very reusable framework, um, but for now we're just focusing, we, we want to deliver this thing in the best possible way for now. 
Um, and your second question was about the interesting facts. Um, so it's just outlier detection, essentially. It's just looking at how uh, your lab compares to other labs in the region or in the country or how your local authority compares to other local authorities in the country and kind of normalizing it. So, for example, management is a skill that's high in demand everywhere because it's, you know, just appears in every single job ad, essentially. Um, but that wouldn't be an interesting fact. So only if something is higher than in other places, um, that's when we report it as an interesting fact. Again, it's not a very sophisticated methodology that we're using at the moment just because it is a proof of concept. Um, the second question was about how long and how many people. Um, so we've got a multidisciplinary team um, with about four or five data scientists, but we've got other people uh, there as well. We've got user researcher, content designer, interaction designer, product, design, uh, product owner, um, agile delivery manager, and kind of bits and bobs of other roles as well. Um, we started working on the data discovery last year, so around summer last year, I think. Um, and then kind of um, started our actually actual delivery part in uh, January. So we, we took about three months to actually build the thing. Um, I can't tell you how much it costs, unfortunately. Um, um, but yeah, this is, this is how long it took. Um, in terms of explaining some of the quirks with the data, as part of our data discovery, we, we did explore it quite intensively and quite vastly. So we are aware of various different caveats around this. Um, some of it is something that we can't help because it's the nature of the job. So for example, uh, bias against um, jobs with a high turnover being re-advertised. This is something that we're aware of. And the only thing that we can do about this for now is just let our users know that this might happen. Um, and just I think just by being honest about things that we're aware of, um, we can kind of plug that gap. Um, but again, because this is a prototype, we kind of prove, prove the concept, um, but we are working on kind of, if there's any additional caveats that maybe we can work around and we can fix in the data, then um, we will iterate on it um, in the next phases of the project. Brilliant. Uh, let's take another set of questions. Anybody next door, please come to the door. Um, we'll go um, there, there, and there. Hi, I'm Ed Parks. I work with public sector organisations on data strategy and innovation projects. Um, I have a question about the extent to which past um, skills are a predictor of skills needed in the future, particularly in the context of digital skills, which change quite quickly. How confident are you that the information you're providing to the LEPs is a good guide for their sort of procuring uh, behaviour? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, front row there. Yeah, my question was nearly identical. Um, you've got four years of data, but how are you using that to predict how job like vacancies are going to change in the future? Um, that was it. Thanks. And then the back row of that section there. Yeah, my question is a bit similar as well. Um, the Office of National Statistics have their own set of skills and jobs. Uh, list of types of roles and I wonder whether you've been talking to them about perhaps bringing their list more up to date using the data that you're using. Thank you. Um, so I'll just take the prediction question altogether. Um, we're not actually predicting anything. There's no forecasting being done in the application. Um, so we're basically supplying the users with the information at kind of face value. So we're saying these, these skills have been growing and we can give them a percentage growth if this is what they require. Um, but we're not saying that this means that they will be growing or that they will be in demand. Um, by giving them that time series chart, we can kind of start showing them whether they're growing because, um, for example, in Blackpool, 
Um, you would imagine retail and hospitality jobs growing uh, over the summer, but then dipping after the summer. Um, so we can we can kind of start showing that through the time series chart, but we're not actually making any predictions. So it's it's not a decision making tool; it's a decision supporting tool. So it's still um, in the remit of our users to decide what that information means for them and how they're going to base their decisions on that. Um, now, in terms of um, ONS datasets and kind of other work going on in this space, um, we are aware of stuff um, and um, we would love to work with other organizations on updating like skills registers and skills taxonomies and things like that. Um, so I think the only thing that I would say in here is uh, please come and collaborate with us if you've got, if you have work going on in this space and uh, watch this space if you're interested, I guess. I like the idea of the ONS having a very particular set of skills. It's a bit Liam Neeson, isn't it? Um, we've, got very, we've got time for one very quick further question. If anybody has a burning thing they would like to ask. Otherwise, Alex, thank you very much. Thank you. And next up, we have... Sam and Sarah talking about the Government Data Ethics Framework. Okay, go. We were going to do an intro, but this is Sarah, I'm Sam. Let's just, <laughs> let's just get on with it. So, um, straight away. So, we're here to talk about the Data Ethics Framework. So, just a quick bit of context setting. So, in 2013, uh, a series of sessions focusing on emerging technology and future skills led to the creation of the first Government Data Science Team. Um, a joint venture between Cabinet Office and GDS uh, to explore the potential impact of data science on policy making and public service delivery. It became apparent quite quickly that government was not necessarily the most mature uh, customer for this type of work. And so uh, kind of as a result of some kind of uh, slightly strange request, we decided that actually we need to start thinking about things in, in a kind of a, a guidelines and, and what kind of uh, things we needed to do in order to make government a more mature uh, customer for data science. So uh, the data science team actually went from strength to strength from 2013 to 2016. And uh, in 2016, uh, started to become uh, a partnership. So the data science partnership uh, was founded between ONS, GDS, and uh, Government Office of Science. Um, and they commissioned a piece of uh, public dialogue, which uh, is from Ipsos Mori and uh, others, uh, which actually uh, kind of arrived at this point that although uh, the public were um, Kind of wary about some some uses of data they were quite happy as long as things were being done in, in a way that was uh, transparent and, and and well managed so this kind of gave us an idea that actually we should go and and publish what we think are the, are the right things uh, this also uh, this slide around the law and ethics is quite important so on one side of the slides here you see that the uh, the plethora of laws are actually quite difficult for non-experts to negotiate um, we needed to quickly translate kind of lengthy legal documents into practical advice um, and practical data ethics is essential in order to do things in the right way with government and with data um, and also uh, kind of helps us to try and find a process for setting up uh, ways of making decisions and communicating benefits and risks to our stakeholders as well. Uh, so this all led to the actual creation of our first data science ethical framework. So this is from 2016 and um, this is our first iteration and this is our kind of beta version and what this did was uh, effectively kind of gave high level guidance uh, things to consider when using data uh, in, in terms of data science projects um, and was tested with departments uh, and feedback was collected uh, on its use. 
So the original framework was published in 2016 um, and it, we kind of sat around for a year and people used it and then we kind of started a new bunch of work to look at um, what do people think of the framework, what kinds of projects is it, is it helping or not helping and what are the kind of pros and cons and should we have a new framework or should we leave it the way it is? And so one of the organisations that we work very closely to think about a new framework was Essex County Council who have a partnership. Um, and they were looking at different ways that you could use predictive analytics in um, the delivery of local services. And they were instrumental in how we thought about updating the framework. They gave us a lot of feedback around how it was the only thing they could find at the time, which helped then construct um, productive conversations across a range of um, stakeholders, so heads of services and child protection and the police, and a lot of people who just had no idea about predictive analytics. And those are really the people that you need to get on board if you want to do good things with data. Um, in local government and central government. So um, we did a lot of work both with users of the framework but also just a lot of engagement with data scientists both in government and also in industry then also with um, lawyers and philosophers um, and just kind of anyone who had an interest in this area and had some really interesting conversations around how you actually kind of codify good practice in data projects. So that kind of led us to rethink um, the, the framework and we kind of moved away from a pure focus on data science because we really realised that if you want to talk about data um, sensibly you need to be able to talk about it holistically so there are lots of things that go into making decisions on a data project like um, information assurance, security, um, then also obviously the total practical end of does your algorithm make sense, is the data of good quality, can you trust your, um, your results. So that led to a new um, Seven, seven principles which I'll run through. So start with clear user need, obviously very important. Um, next, be aware of relevant legislation and codes of practice. Um, number three, use data which is proportionate to the user need. Understand the limitations of the data, use robust practices and work within your skill set. Make your work transparent and be accountable and embed data use responsibly. So importantly, the new framework was not just aimed at data scientists, a big part of the engagement showed that um, this was really off-putting to people. Um, we want any kind of policymaker or um, anyone in operational specialist be able to pick this up and feel like they can learn something about the things that you should consider when you start out with a data project. So importantly, it was for anyone working directly or indirectly with data in government or anyone who is interested in starting to do so. So this is the framework on GovUK, so it has um, a set of principles and then each principle has um, uh, kind of hopefully clear plain English guidance on how to th go about thinking about that. So it generally kind of links to key things that we think will help teams in investigating key issues that we've identified further. Um, we've also provided a workbook, so feedback is consistently showing that people love self-assessment. It also really helps when you're working in kind of um, multidisciplinary teams because it helps people document how they feel about a project and it's, de it's designed to be dynamic. So if you don't feel like you're quite there on a particular principle at any point, you should be able to work out a way to move forward and go back. So this is just to give an example of some of the questions that we asked for the self-assessment tool. So things like, can you get peers to review your pool requests? Uh, kind of, it goes everywhere from kind of thinking about user needs to just quality assurance of your data project. And part of this um, is also including a data ethics workbook for procurement. So obviously we don't just build um, software in government, we buy a lot of it. So how do you equip civil servants and public servants to make informed decisions about the software that they're buying? Um, and this is really to give a set of questions people so they can kind of feel empowered or at least show them what they don't know so throughout the whole um, framework we really encourage people to make sure they go and speak to experts 
So we've seen what's happened with the, the, the most recent uh, iteration of this. Now, the future of the ethics framework is, is a number of things. First of all, we've seen the ethics framework kind of being adopted and used for other purposes. So this actually is the outline of the, of the new uh, DHSC, Department for Health uh, Code of Conduct for tax. So again, like the basis of this is effectively the data ethics framework, but they developed it in a way that works for the health sector. We've also seen other things around things like AI guidance and AI toolkits that will be uh, released shortly, which also are kind of grounded in the principles that we, we've introduced in the data ethics framework. And then finally, just to say, you know, going beyond the data ethics framework and the next iteration, this is the kind of process we're looking to try and follow. So we want to kind of talk to departments, talk to the, pub the public sector about how they're using the ethics framework, kind of anal uh, analyze the gaps, you know, in terms of where this is actually useful and where it's not, and then look to try and refresh the principles, develop more workbooks and more practical guidance that people can actually use in, in practice and then, and then obviously iterate further uh, going forward. Um, we do recognize that we need to do a lot more around actually understanding the behavioral effects of this work and actually understanding you know, the, the, the real kind of uh, changes this is gonna be making uh, on, on the ground in terms of the way that data projects are being managed. Um, but we're hoping we can kind of reach out more and, and kind of gather that information as we look to, to, to continue with the further iterations of this going forward. Thank you very much. Okay. I think that deserves a round of applause. Sure. So, any questions? I'm aware there was a slight gender imbalance in the first set, so I'm particularly looking for any questions from women in the audience. Any questions? Hands up. So we've got one there, one there, and one there. Thank you. Do you want to pass that along? Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Julia. I'm a statistician in MHCLG. Um, this feels like something I should know about, and I don't. Um, it doesn't feel like it's come through from the government stats service, so I'm just wondering how you're getting it out there to people. Hi, I'm Chris Barnes, How is England. Um, just public sentiment around ethics shifts. Are you doing anything to track that and make sure that we've got ethical or unethical use cases for data that you might be sort of um, demonstrating to people? And a bit linked to that, the first question is about um, use of the framework and have you got examples of how it's impacted use within departments? The second question is about transparency and algorithms and what is the GDS position on transparency and algorithms and what should departments be doing in that space? So, on the first one about kind of you haven't heard of it, yeah, so that's a massive problem. Yeah. Um, a lot of people hadn't heard of the first version either, um, and you will know that the government analytical professions are very complex, um, and obviously, not to make an excuse, but it's very, very difficult. Um, a lot of the work we did was to go around and talk to as many data scientists, operational researchers, analysts, um, and a lot of the reason why we changed the name of it is because you can't, it, originally it was called data scientists, data science and focused data scientists, that immediately put off all of the other analysts yeah. and lots of policy people. Um, it really is just sort of a hard slog of trying to get out there. Um, it is well, fairly well known in the data science community, it's encouraged um, a lot of work at MOJ, so they do a lot of predictive, well they're investigating predictive analytics for um, recidivism and they're looking at how they use the kind of process that we've gone through to come up with their own 
um, I don't think it's one framework fits all and everyone can just take it up and use it. It's really about striking up a conversation around how do you actually codify this stuff? Like, what does it look like in teams and what do you need to have a sensible conversation? And how do you get an analyst communicating with a non-specialist? Yeah, absolutely. So just second that, um, <clears throat> we, uh, we're trying to kind of reach out as much as we can with this and actually pr promote it as much as possible. We've seen pockets of activity where people have picked it up and iterated, as, as I kind of showed in, in the slides, but we're really keen on continuing that conversation. So if there are department forums, et cetera, then do, do, do let us know, tweet me or whatever, and I'll, I'll come and do that. Um, moving on to the second uh, point there about use cases and ethical use cases. Um, so obviously there is this kind of serious issue around kind of uh, public perception of data use and obviously we've seen some massive high profile things that have happened in, in, in society in the last kind of, you know, just the last 18 months that have really kind of, um, I guess, hardened that stance. So we are really keen on trying to kind of do some more communication around like what does good data use look like and what are the benefits for data use. Now, that doesn't necessarily like stop with the data ethics framework. That's something that actually we should be promoting, you know, as, as a kind of a, as a sector almost, like in terms of like what the what the kind of outcomes could be for citizens if we could do you know, more things in the right way. Um, but actually, as part of this work, as we look to iterate, we'll be going out and trying to find those kind of use cases and, and trying to champion them and, and actually publish them in a, in a way that's, uh, that's kind of accessible, if that, if that makes sense. Um, um, on that, though, I would say the, the framework in itself is about um, good practice. So it mm. doesn't, it's not about policing. Um, it, doesn't just, it doesn't tell you if the thing that you want to do is ethical or not. It says if you want to do a thing and you've gone through the process, good policy making of establishing a user need, um, going through your, if you need a business case and all these kinds of issues and talk, talk to your stakeholders, here is a good process for having a data project. It doesn't tell you you can or can't do things. So we've, we really have tried to stay away from, you know, we're not, there's not going to be a sort of an ethics police that goes around government. It's really about embedding good scientific method when you use data to make decisions in government. Absolutely. And then the final question was just around, uh, I think, the, the bit about okay. GD, GDS position. We can't speak for GDS, unfortunately. So, yeah, so there isn't um, a, G, a GDS position, I would say, on kind no. of algorithms. Um, this is now a DCMS framework, <laughs> but it's also the government data ethics framework. Um, it has actually quite extensive guidance in there on um, transparency of algorithms, and that was written with um, data scientists. So just to give really honest kind of practical advice and what um, kind of government data scientists. But the point is more yeah, so, yeah. Um, so, so I think a, a really good um, group of data scientists and MOJ were, were using this yeah. quite extensively to think about how they tackled it in their own work. Um, there's also the work that was done in uh, various um, local authorities. So we can definitely put you in touch with people who've used it. Mm. Uh, next set of questions, and again, anybody in the room next door that wants to ask anything, do come to the door. Uh, so we've got one at the back, and we've got one there, and another one there. Hi, I'm Chris Fairless from uh, the Great London Authority. Uh, just a question about uh, machine learning, which is, of course, a hot topic, and is also a series of pitfalls for any inexperienced data scientists who... Uh, especially are working with sensitive data or data that maybe has sort of race, gender components. Um, have you thought or advised particularly on sort of unintended effects of implementing uh, different processes? Thank you. And then we've got a couple of questions uh, sort of in the middle there. Hi, I'm Robert from uh, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority. So we do a lot of work with um, 
other governments um, on enforcing best practice in infrastructure procurement. Um, how does this framework compare to other countries' frameworks, and um, are we seen as um, you know leading on best practice? Um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, one particularly impressive aspect of this, um, how hard was it working with Essex on ethics? <laughs> Thank you very much for that. <laughs> yeah, I think that was actually a headline, the only way is ethics, and it was just quite nice that we had worked with Essex. Um, so on the first one, on the machine learning, yeah, so obviously massive part of this. Um, loads of different things to take into account. So there's the technical aspect, so obviously what data science is just knowing how to do machine learning, but actually what you, um, we've got a guidance in there around kind of, you know, um, removing statistical traces and this kind of thing, the more technical end. But actually what's really important for those things and unintended consequences is speaking to the people who know about the data, and that's not usually the data scientists, that's the people who run and operate services. So. Uh, Obviously, it would have been great to go into much more detail on what's in the framework, but I really encourage you to read it because we kind of hammer home constantly. It's about multidisciplinary teams. You cannot have data scientists kind of squirreling away with machine learning, not having any concept of like what, where that data comes from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, then what was the next question? So, this is infrastructure and oh, leading. leading. Yeah, so this is the first of its kind, I think, uh, internationally. We, we did a check and we're pretty sure that's correct. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty sure. So, uh, so yeah, we're, we are seen as a leader in this space, actually, and this is something that we're talking to our kind of partners internationally about, you know, what are they actually bringing in, in other places. Obviously, one of the things that's really important to bear in mind is the legal frameworks that we work within as well here. So, obviously, uh, Europe, GDPR, you know, Quite similar, you know. There's potentially kind of interoperability there. When you go to other countries that maybe don't have a similar regime, that's that's a different question potentially. So we need to kind of case by case and work with our partners. But we are seen as a leader in this space uh, internationally, absolutely. Fantastic. Okay? Three seconds to go. Very well done. Thank you very much. And next, we'll be hearing from Simon on personal data. Um, <laughs> yes, we would like you to have a mic. Okay. <laughs> we will find you a mic. Cool. One, two, one, two. Brilliant. Um, okay, personal data in government is broken. Crikey. Um, why do I say that? Well, um, broadly, uh, it's because uh, citizens, when they interact with government through services, um, are not particularly happy with the way it works. Uh, people expect uh, more direct links than they currently have. It's, it's 2019. I, I, my, my smartphone talks to my credit card. Like, why is government not talking to a different part of government? Um, why am I having to take information from one part of government and send it to a different part of government? This is frustrating and it clearly does not meet user needs. Um, why does it happen? Um, this is what people broadly imagine government as. Um, it's a thing and there's a database. Um, as, as most people know, uh, probably in this room, that's not really what government looks like. It's a lot more federated than that. Really, what happens is departments collect data to like, do their services and they don't really share it. And that kind of works fine. Um, we decided we didn't want to do the Big Brother database, so that's okay. 
Um, it works fine until a service comes along and actually says, uh, okay, I need to actually collect uh, something from over here and something from over here in order to make this, make this work. Um, and it, they can't. There is no link. Uh, generally speaking, there isn't really a way to do it. Obviously, it is done in pockets, but not by default. Um, so really, services that are quite small, um, they don't really have any other option. Um, they basically have to get the citizen to, to do the data collection for them. They have to explain to the citizen what proofs they want to see uh, and get the citizen to go and collect them. Um, why is that hard? Basically because the proofs look like this. Um, they're not designed as proofs. They're letters or uh, just bits of paper. Um, that is a personal independence payment letter which tells you about your personal independence payment status. It's set seven pages long. Um, the in important information is on page one. Um, this is a DLA letter, Disability Living Allowance. It's eight pages long. The important pe uh, piece of information is on page two. Um, typically, citizens get this wrong a lot. Uh, they either send all the pages, they send all, only the pages they think are important, um, or they take a picture using their Nokia 3410 and you can't read it. Um, and really, services feel a lot of pain because of this, because they're constantly having to spend money in caseworker time, going backwards and forwards, trying to collect the right information, or like in the most extreme cases, going into Microsoft Paint and scrubbing out the bits they're not meant to have access to. That's a genuine thing that happens. Um, so increasingly, the solution that people uh, are turning to is to make this evidence submission easier. So yeah, instead of scanning or instead of us having to explain how to use a scanner, uh, we're actually just going to get you to take a picture using your iPhone. Um, okay, fine. But they're doing that rather than going to the source of the data itself and saying, actually, can we, can we just have a direct link here? Why are they doing that? Um, short, uh, short answer is, uh, data sharing is uh, really hard. Um, it's, it's not really clear how to do it well or at all. Um, departments are naturally quite risk averse, and that's for a good reason. It's because they have a responsibility to protect their citizens' data um, from being misused or leaked. And so that's a good thing they should do it. But what that means is that if, uh, if you want to come along and actually get a direct link into any of that data, or maybe not even a direct link, or just get, take a cut of it, for example, um, that's really hard to do. Um, and the, the hard thing is basically it can take years of legal agreements. So you're talking like 18 months to 24 months to set up the legal agreements to do a data share. And if you want to actually want to do it in a, a live way with a digital service and have a, a live link to their data, that's going to cost you £250,000 to do that. Um, obviously, uh, that's outside of the remit of many smaller services because you know, their volumes can be far less than that over a year. Um, so if we want to make this data more safely available for services to better meet the user needs of citizens, how are we going to do that? Well, firstly, we need to lower the value of data being sent. We don't need to be telling services Everything that is known about a citizen, we need to be telling them things that they need to know. And actually, anything they need to know is, is the citizen eligible for the thing that they're trying to get access to? Um, we just need to lower the effort of legal agreements. So when you, whenever you come along and do a data share, that's 24 months of legal agreements. If you want to do another one, that's another 24 months. You can't reuse any of it, sorry. Um, so we need to be doing better there. Uh, we need to raise the standard of the technology. Um, we need to ra raise the reuse of existing sharing. So, if I see there's a data share happening between like, two departments, and I say, well, actually, can we do something similar? Um, they can say, oh, yeah, we're going to start from scratch on that, though, obviously. Um, so that'll be another two years and another £250,000. Uh, this is clearly not going to work. Um, enter personal data exchange. 
Uh, this was a project run by the Government Digital Service. Um, and really, the, the idea behind Personal Data Exchange was a, a trusted federation of people who are going to share personal data, um, or actually access personal data, because really it's not about sharing big bulk information, it's really about asking, very, answering very specific questions. So if a service needs to know if you're eligible for, let's say, a disabled parking permit, that's all the information they get to find out about you. Are you eligible? Yes or no. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a protocol, it's a technology, and it's a federation based on that idea. Um, similarly to something like uh, G Cloud, if anyone's familiar with that, or the digital marketplace where you get onboarded once and then you have access to a, a broader pool, the same idea here. So instead of uh, doing a bilateral agreement every time with everyone you need data from, you can join a federation, do all that stuff once, and we'll do it well. Um, also, the technology is really hard to integrate, and cybersecurity is obviously a really serious thing. Um, so we'll get everyone to do that once as well, and we'll make sure that we design it well and we do it well. So they only have to do that really hard integration once, and everyone trusts it. And if you do that, then what we end up with is auditable, compliant, privacy preserving data access. Um, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about how that works, but that would be a great topic for a question. Um, so it was a project at the Government Digital Service. Um, I appreciate you can't click on any of these links right this moment, um, but hopefully we'll share the slides. Come and have a look at the stuff that was done. Um, we built a whole system and a proof of concept, and we showed that it works and it can work. Um, the key message I wanted to give right now is that we need to do something about this now. And the reason we need to do something about this now um, is because people are starting to do it themselves without any guidance on how to do it well. And uh, they're doing it badly. I've missed a slide. OK, that's fine. Uh, basically, uh, the, the example I was going to use was um, the age verification um, for pornography websites. Um, this has not been done particularly well. Uh, it's been done quite embarrassingly badly. Um, go and have a look at uh, Alec Muffet on Twitter if you'd like to know exactly why it's incredibly terrible. Um, short answer is, people are not doing it well. We need to like, do something for everyone now. We need to do the hard work to make it simple. Thank you very much. Thank you. I had some great screenshots about porn verification. That's a shame. I'm not sure anybody's talked about porn on the Institute for Government stage before. Um, do we have any questions? There must be lots after that. So we've got one front here. We've got another one at the front. We've got a third questioner. Can I encourage anybody else to ask a third question? Great, well, we have three at the front. Richard Sterling from Oxford Insights. Um, I was fascinated about the uh, MVP that you have built. Mm -hmm. You teed me up for a technical question. I'm going to ask a legal question, and I'll uh -huh. not take questions, okay. so sorry. Um, how, how simple did you manage to get the legals? Uh, so that it stops being a two-year process and hopefully it's nice and short. And also, how many people did you get signed up for the MVP, so actually sharing some data? Okay, that's uh, a excellent question. Thanks. Um, Tom from DCMS, but uh, not in a DCMS capacity. Um, wouldn't the hard work to make it simple, or the right hard work to make it simple, just be convincing everyone to have an ID card? And just to the frontier as well. Hi, uh, Adam from RHE Global. Um, how important are APIs in data sharing? And can you tell us a bit more about the MVP that you built? Thank you very much. 
Uh, yeah, great questions. Thank you very much. Um, so in terms of how simple did we get the legal stuff? So to give a bit of context um, about this project, uh, basically it was, it was a project at GDS, but it got paused, so it's not being actively worked on anymore, um, which is kind of why I say we should be doing something, <clears throat> perhaps. Um, the place we got to with the legal was basically uh, modeling in a, uh, a technical sense the kind of the data sharing agreements uh, built of various things. We didn't do as much work on that as we'd liked. To answer the second part of the question with why, uh, it's because we didn't get a huge number of partners uh, engaged because it was still quite an, al it was an alpha project. It was still quite early. Um, so if we wanted to pick this work back up, that would be the next point to be focusing on. Um, appreciate that that's a, a bit of a follow-up answer, but probably that's where we got to with that. Um, second question, ID cards. Well, uh, if you want to do that, sure. Um, I, I think when you asked the question, you heard the, the response in the room. I think like, kind of the point is that we decided that we don't want to do that as a society. Um, if we need to change our minds on that, fine, we can do that. But assuming that that's where we are, then this is the sort of thing we need to do. Um, APIs, uh, yes. So I was hoping someone would ask about APIs so I can make a point about the legal thing being more important. Um, so that's great. Thanks, for, thanks both of you for that. Um, basically, uh, I, I can't remember exactly the content that made me think this, but yes, you have to do APIs. Um, but in, in every case, basically, you, your government is still, oh, no, actually, this was, oh, sorry. This is to answer the ID card question. The ID card question um, it is, very relevant, but I think even unless you bring all the data together as well, uh, you still have the problem of how do you actually access data in people's databases, because really the ID card thing is there for identity, which is just a factor in this system. It's not just about who you are, it's about actually what is known about you. Maybe you could store everything on an ID card, but that presents its own challenges. Um, how important are APIs? Yes, they're really important. One of the things we wanted to get right here was to make sure that APIs uh, they, they didn't have to be done the same every single time. Uh, no, they did have to be done the same every single time um, so that you could basically, uh, as, a, as a local authority, you could integrate once and then use the same API over and over again so you're not having the constant development burden. Um, the MVP is there. I'll tweet about it afterwards as well. Uh, it's on GitHub. It's all open source. Uh, go and have a look at it. It's really great. Great. Um, next set of questions. So we've got another one there. We've got one at the back. Anyone who's not asked a question before that would like to ask one? And again, any women? We've got one here as well. So this is a, this is a great idea, but the blocker to this kind of thing has always been that there are people in government, your SROs and your CIROs, whose job it is is to look after the data and stop it getting out. And there's no incentive for them to share data just because some other part of government would find it useful how do we persuade those people that they want to make their data available? Thank you. Uh, question back. Uh, Chris Fairless at the GLA, a similar question. A lot of people consider the government untrustworthy or an opponent in some cases. Uh, for example, and, and enabling data sharing is a very political topic. For example, doctors being required to verify immigration status, which this would make very simple potentially. Um, what's the political context that you've thought about here? Thank you. And finally. Mateusz Opsomalowski from DIT. Uh, Propositely stupid question. <laughs> Why it's okay for the department to get uh, information about its user 
from other department as a paper, as a scanned paper, and we don't need data sharing for it. While if you want to automate it, you need a data sharing agreement. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, how do we persuade SROs, basically? Um, that's a difficult question, as you know. Um, basically, I think what it boils, a big part of what it boils down to is that, like, kind of this, is that, like, this is happening, and, like, citizens are increasingly putting pressure on departments to do this anyway. Um, and that's not going to go away. That pressure to, like, digitize and get more linked up like, it is constantly going to be there. Um, and the fact is, like, we have to, you're going to have to act and do it. Otherwise, you're going to get embarrassed. Um, as, a, as, a, as a nation, like, we're not doing very well. There are a lot of other nations who are much further ahead than we are on this sort of stuff. Um, so, nationally, it's getting a little bit embarrassing. And at a departmental level, there's a lot of, like, that, that pressure there to meet citizens' needs is only going to get more, basically. I think that's a big part of the case. Um, yeah, data sharing is untrustworthy. Yeah, fair enough. Um, one of the big things we, we, we wanted to, or we did land in this system, was actually making sure um, that everything that happened was transparent. So that was done basically in two ways. Uh, one is there's actually, as part of the federation, uh, part of the network, uh, there's an independent body. Uh, which basically controls that, the entire network and which says, actually, in order to do any data sharing within this network, you have to convince us that this is a good thing and that you have the right to do it and it's proportionate. And so that's not necessarily a job for um, something that's completely government. Perhaps it's a role for someone like the Privacy and Consumer Advisory Group like to be doing that sort of thing. Um, but basically there is... like provision for there to be someone independent who says, yes, this kind of data sharing is okay and it's something that we want. Um, secondly, it's also possible using the auditing technology that we built to basically say, okay, how has my data been used? Um, and do that in a way that only the citizen can get access to and say, okay, uh, actually, another thing that we found was that some citizens don't want to interact with any departments. So some people were like, oh, I don't want NHS to ever, like, ever be part of this transaction. So you, they had the option to say, actually, you know, scratch NHS. They're not allowed to see anything. So they do get fine-grained control, possibly. Um, why are papers okay? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not sure. I think broadly the answer is because it's it's seen as kind of much more in control of the citizen, and through the submission of that paper, it's kind of their. Uh, consent being given that that's the, what they want to do with that physical artifact whereas when they're not in the conversation you, you can't really kind of say that they've consented to it necessarily in quite the same way um, there are much better people uh, to answer that question potentially sitting one or two rows behind you so I'd encourage you <laughs> to, uh, to turn around and ask that question to them as well um, because that's, that's a tough one to be sure yeah it's possible although I appreciate amount of time. However, ICO has said that's not necessarily the right model for government services. Let's talk about it more afterwards, though. Thank you very much. Now, we've had one Databytes first already today, which was a live web demo. We have another one coming up shortly, which is a video.
next kid, you can all come back next time. That's great. Um, so let me introduce to the stage um, our sponsors for the evening, RHE Global. Uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Martin Pilkington, and this is Hugh Williams, and we're from RHE Global. I'm going to be talking about generating positive social outcomes from citizen reporting using a product that we developed called the Noise App as an example of this. RHG Global, what we do is we sell software products that give solutions to local government and to central government. So we've developed a smarter communications project with the FSA, which is going extremely well with roughly 400 local authorities involved in that with food alerts, etc. We've developed a product called RIAMS, which is uh, Regulatory Information and Management Services, which is for environmental health officers, and is an expert system. And we've developed apps for local government. And one of those apps that we developed is called the Noise App. And we're going to go through this and explain what that is. But even as far back as 2017, the Guardian newspaper was looking around the world at apps in government and found that our app was one of the top seven successful apps in the world. We just sponsored, because we create apps for local government, a Socketim report on apps in local government, surprisingly. And what that said is that, generally speaking, more and more people can get access to local government services by using apps and that the Socketing Report, they looked at 145 local government apps and they found that some of the apps are multi-service, so you can report or you can interact on various things, and some of the apps were specific apps, as the Noise app is a specific app. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go into it in a bit more detail and share with you how it works and what it's for. And Essentially, it is an example of citizen science. I don't know if you're aware of the concept, I'm sure you are, uh, where you actually take a data point, like a noise, and you record it and you pass it to a scientist who then analyzes it. But this is how it works. If everyone liked the same sounds, noise wouldn't be a problem. Perhaps it's the neighbor's dog, the late night parties, the early morning construction work, or maybe some other kind of noise. Whatever it is, you have the right to enjoy your home in peace. This is where the Noise App comes in. The Noise App gives everyone a simple way to capture noise nuisance and report it safely and securely to their local subscribing organization. The Noise App, simplifying noise reporting and investigation. Almost everybody, I would imagine, in the room has had problems with noise at some point in their life. It is a very, very serious issue. Scientifically, even when you're asleep, your brain responds to noise. So does your heart rate. So it's a, it was seen in 2011 in the World Health Organization as a significant issue across the world in terms of uh, health issues and also in terms of antisocial behavior and problems like that. So we have provided a diary tool, a tool so that we can accelerate noise complaints to environmental officers so that they can actually act on them. I think 
What environmental health officers need is, is evidence. Um, years gone by, what they used was things like noise sheets. Um, the Noise app now empowers uh, members of the public or people being disturbed by noise to actually gather information and confidently submit it then either to the local authorities going to investigate it or the housing associations who could be dealing with it. What it also does then is enables the, the noise problem or the noise to be captured in a, in a standard format and in a standard way. If you look at the triangle, what we're trying to do here is collect data um, but then hand that data, as Martin said, over to environmental health officers, the scientist people, who can analyse it. They can then decide um, what action is needed to remedy it and what interventions are required to resolve the problem. Um, so it's, it is about engagement, it is about working with, with the public, um, and it's about using new and different and um, evolving methods of gathering information rather than relying on historic ones which weren't always reliable and, and successful. Um, interestingly, um, you can see the number of, of local authorities and housing associations that use the app. Um, we've got 200 local authorities. Um, 7,000 people have actually downloaded or uh, downloaded and registered to use the Noise app. Um, this is the bit I find really fascinating now is, you know, we, we've ended up with 450,000 plus um, recordings and submissions to local authorities, a massive amount of data. Um, and that relates to over uh, 45,000 uh, cases where noise is, is a problem. What we're finding now is, and our you know, we work very closely obviously with our local authority and housing association colleagues, um, is some of that noise, it, it may not be a barking dog, we're now drilling into it and finding things like um, domestic violence, physical, emotional abuse. Um, so we're now having to think about right, what solutions need to be put in place to deal with this. And what we've got then is, um, through things like community safety partnerships, mechanisms where information can be shared between local authorities, housing associations, the police, and other partners to try and deal with it, to identify the appropriate resolution. So we collect data. Um, you record on the actual phone information about where you are, where you've heard the noise, and then you actually create a series of data points, 30-second recordings, biopsies of the problem. It could be over a month, it could be over three weeks, it, that's sent to the uh, environmental health officer who opens a case and then in the end the case is closed. Either something is done about it or it may not be a statutory noise nuisance, so there may be not much that can be done about it, but they'll give some advice back on how to handle that. This is an example of the back office uh, analytics that can be done on the website. We have a cloud website where the information is sent from the noise app to actually the website, which is what the environmental health officer looks at. And so they can say, well, last year we had this number of complaints, this number of noise problems in this area. Maybe it was construction. Next year we might have more construction happening in our local authority. So maybe we'll talk to the construction firm and say, look, we had too many complaints last year, can you start to look at more ways to mitigate some of these problems? In terms of pollution, um, clearly the biggest um, polluter or issue around pollution is, is air quality. Noise now is, is fast following it in terms of how many people are affected by noise problems every year. Um, again, following on the pyramid, what we're looking at is pre pre predicting and preventing. Um, what we've got is all this information about noise problems, um, we're now able to see where it's happening because of the information that's submitted to the, the website. The analysis, the analysis that local authorities can do, we can build that up and start looking at the national dimension. Um, we're having conversations already with the Welsh Government about uh, how we develop a, no a noise and air quality strategy. 
Um, we're already doing a noise, an air quality strategy. Noise is clearly having an impact on communities. So we've got to think about how we can end up with joined up solutions to tackle some of these ongoing problems. Um, in terms of the, the, the citizens and the public, um, the survey was done by Welsh Government last year, which identified that 25% of people had been affected by noise in the previous 12 months. So clearly there's, a, there's, a, there's an interest and a genuine interest. And I think what we're seeing as well is issues around antisocial behaviour, the data we're getting now can inform and influence policy development as we move forward. Okay. Thank, Thank you very you. much. So, questions on the Noise app and everything around it. So, we've got one at the front, we've got another one at the front. Have I got a third question to take it? And one at the back, and then we'll come to you next. So, down here at the front. A quick one. Uh, yeah. uh, are you opening uh, the data sets on Noise maps? Like, you've got beautiful data. Thank you. Uh, we've got one here as well. Thanks. Like many people, I kind of want fire and I want ice and I want them together and I want them now. Um, I want the creative destruction and innovation of private sector developers putting stuff together for us as local authorities and I want standardisation and simplicity for the citizen. What, what happens if I download the app and I try and report some noise and my local authority isn't a subscriber? Thank you. And let's take the next two questions. One right at the back and then one a few. Let's go for okay. Ed first. Um, just really thinking back to the, the data ethics presentation that we had earlier, um, and there's concern around sort of predictive policing, and um, have you gone through a process or what are your thoughts about um, the ethical considerations around collecting this information and how it's used by local authorities? Thank you. And then the fourth question, right at the back. Hi, it's Stephen Lorimer from the Greater London Authority. Ed's still most of my question, so I'm going to ask a slightly, di <laughs> slightly different one. Sorry, yeah, we've been working together a bit. We are going to ask the same, the same ones. Um, we talk a lot about how we help our boroughs or local authorities try to define what their needs are and then coming towards a, towards a solution. And the question is, how, how have, what has your experience been with your clients of them actually knowing what they need, for example, getting their citizens to have empathy for each other and communicate with each other? And are they bypassing doing that, going that process by, uh, through, through solutions? And, and I'm just interested to hear your thoughts of that experience as a vendor. Thank you. Okay. okay. Um, so, noise maps. Um, we can... Uh, through this app get locational data that will give a picture of um, where noise is occurring uh, in different places within a local authority or housing estate, uh, association. Um, what we're now looking at is obviously anonymized because you know, we um, can't use the personal data for that, but anonymized, we're looking at talking to, as, as Hugh has said, certain government bodies about being able to show a picture of where this noise is happening. And um, what you'll find is that um, when looking at that kind of analysis, it does help with um, being able to look in a predictive way and then moving to a preventative way, which is coming back to the purpose of the noise app in the first place, which is what you see here is there's a person 
and the scientists and the noise complaints are coming over here and he's sorting it out. What we'd like is more ideas over here to stop the need for the person in the first place reporting. Number two. Um, Non-subscribing non local authorities. I think, um, I think the people can download the app if the local authority is not subscribing. What I'd be encouraging people to do is, is find out why they're not subscribing. Um, I think the experience we're getting back from the local authorities at the moment is we work obviously closely with local authority colleagues. They're finding it very useful. Um, what we're hoping for is there's going to be some peer pressure and peer support for it which will show that the way to move forward with these sorts of challenges is to actually have standardised ways of dealing with noise complaints and with the data. The, it is powerful stuff in terms of being able to find solutions and also to bring other partners to the table because quite often if a, no, a noise problem will relate, it won't just affect one um, one person, it could affect many people, but also it could be symptomatic, symptomatic of other problems within a community setting. So I think, you know, it, it is about looking at modern and sophisticated ways of taking things forward. Okay. Um, the third one is about ethical uh, use of the, uh, of the data. Um, in our terms and conditions of use, we, we lay out very clearly, according to GDPR legislation, that we are only using that data for the purposes of actually trying to solve the noise complaint. And then if we do use anonymized data, it's to do with the fact of the complaint. The, the thing is that um, what this product does is that everyone that downloads it to use it is stressed and they're fed up because they've got a, a neighbor or a dog or something and it's affecting their health. And so they are providing this data, trusting that we are only gonna use it for the information uh, for the purposes that they provided it. And that's exactly what we do. So we use um, a top law firm in IT called Jurit, and they have an expert on GDPR and uh, data ethics and, and law, obviously, and we pass everything past them to make sure that everything we do is absolutely in line with the, the regulations and the legislation. Just add a little bit to that as well. The local authorities and housing associations are the ones who will be dealing with the problems. The local authorities will have experience of deal, you know, information exchange with um, partner organisations, police in particular. You know, they'll have um, a core, core that's, you know, um, in Wales as much um, a core on sharing of personal information. A lot of the local authorities will have signed up to that. They've got community safety partnerships crime reduction partnerships, all these, so there's mechanisms and ways of sharing information. So that, that's quite helpful. I think the final question was around um, uh, citizens' engagement. And I, I, I think local authorities, clearly there's a need, they've got mechanisms for talking to their communities. There's mechanisms for feeding information back into the local authority, whether it be through the local councillor, whether it's through, through different sort of um, community settings. Um, but I think there is a need you know, to engage with local authorities, sorry, to engage with citizens so we can get accurate feedback on, on problems that are occurring and finding out whether some of the solutions are working. Um, and I think there is, you know, the, the noises create, you know, it is causing more, more problems to communities, um, but we do need to engage with people to change behaviours because at the end of the day, um, we live next to people, we, we're surrounded by people in flat blocks of flats, and there is something here about neighbouring us. Neighbouring, I don't know if that's even a word, even so apologies. <laughs> Another Welsh word for it. <laughs> yeah. okay.
Okay, okay thank you. Excellent. Um, we've got time for another quick question, or possibly two. Got one down at the front and one there as well, and one there as well. Let's go through all three really quickly. We can do this. Um, yeah. um, hi, so quick question, hopefully. Um, who owns the data? Is it you, is it the local authorities? And who analyzes, analyzes the data? Is it you or is it local authorities? Because in my experience, the capability for analysis in local authorities is a very varied landscape. Hi. Um, what's the service that sits around the app? So once the noise gets reported, you say it gets passed on to an enforcement officer, but what happens then? Uh, is the app linked in with the local authority enforcement services? And final question of the night, just there. Uh, highly linked to the first question that was asked, what skills and resources are required within a local authority to subscribe to this service, especially about data analytics? Okay, so we provide a tool that processes the data and the data uh, is then used by the local authorities under its own data protection and GDPR rules. So um, they uh, listen to the recordings, we don't. So only the people that are authorised to make a decision on whether that is a statutory noise nuisance or not inside local government or housing associations get to listen to that data. Nobody else does. The second question probably links to the first in, in terms of you've got experienced officers who've been dealing with, particularly within the local authority sect, sector, the regulatory services, they've got lots of experiences and for many years have been dealing with noise problems. You know, it's, it's a statutory nuisance and it goes back to the um, 1875 Public Health Act. I wasn't around when that was written, but I remember it. Um, but, but we've also got the link then with, local, with housing associations through things like antisocial behaviour. Um, there's, there's legal provisions there and it's a case then of the local authorities, housing associations working collaboratively to actually identify the best way to deal with the problems. Um, what we're seeing as well is um, local authorities working together on a regional basis to try and develop consistent responses. Because I think um, in terms of um, supporting citizens and providing services to citizens, it seems very unfair for it to be a, a, you know, a very good service in one part of the country and a less, a less than adequate service elsewhere. So I think that's, it's, it's, you know, we're trying to develop um, the responsibilities with the local authorities and the, the, the service providers to come up with the, the, the solutions. We're trying to help them share by sharing good experience and good practice. Mm -hmm. um, so the skills, skills resources it. Yeah. I think it, this is in relation to presumably um, the expertise within the local authorities. And like I said earlier, local authorities have been doing this sort of work for a very long time. Um, one of the benefits of the app as well is it's, it's given a, a very quick um, and a snapshot view of what the noise is like. Lots of local authorities have got very expensive noise monitoring equipment which costs thousands of pounds. You know, and, um, that's got to be maintained and serviced and all these sorts of things. Um, but we have got very adept and very competent and capable professional officers working in the local authority setting. Um, they're looking for modern solutions and what we're trying to do then is give them tools that can deliver modern, flexible and agile services to, to stakeholders and citizens. I think yes. the last question was about analysis. Yeah, yeah sorry. 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 I was gonna... So as a yeah. local authority, do I get this to my noise enforcement officer? 
Can I then say how many complaints were there in the last three months and three months before that? Yep. And were more yep. of them about live yep. music in yep. you know, yes. Bambury and were more of them about yes. loud yeah. yeah, exactly. What this does is it enables much faster analysis yeah. and much more thorough analysis because the data's all there. Yeah. Okay, so before it was just manual timesheets, so actually crunching a lot of data was a real big problem. This gives you the data, it gives you the analytics within the product itself. Then you can, if you have an API, which we create, you can pull it into back office and you can do analytics on it. Yeah. But the only the people who are supposed to see this data are the ones who actually do that work. What we want to do is move it to another level, which is to say we want to cooperate with communities yeah. and charities and other bodies to look at the anonymized data and say, right, how can we now look at prediction and then what are the preventative measures? Because what I want to do and what he wants yeah. to do in our company is, as I say, instead of the main flow coming to here, is start to flow back to actually prevent the need for the noise nuisance being reported in the first place. Thank you very much indeed. Um, four very different projects tonight, but I think some of the key things that were common across them were about users and actually solving real-world problems. When we think of users, we tend to think of citizens, but we've also seen at least two presentations tonight where the citizens are part of the data collection or curation process. And we've also seen the importance of treating civil servants and those making the decisions in government as users and thinking about their experience as well. Um, I'm only going to keep you from the wine for another minute or so. I don't have a timer for that. Um, but a few parish notices before we do depart. Um, do look out for Devolution at 20, which will be out later next week. Uh, sorry, later this week. And if you'd like to come to the event, have a look on our website. Uh, that will be on Tuesday. Thinking about um, Databytes, um, the next one will be on the 4th of June. Unlike cabinet discussions about Huawei, we do encourage you to tell everybody. Um, so please do tell your friends and um, hopefully see you and lots of them here next time around. If you're interested in presenting or know somebody who should talk to me, we're also looking for sponsors to support the next event. RHE Global were in the audience last time round, so anybody, please do come and see me afterwards. Um, all that remains for me to say is thank you to our AV team tonight, who've been given every challenge possible, I think. Um, thank you to RHE Global, again, for supporting tonight's event. Thank you all for coming, and last but certainly not least, thank you to all of our presenters tonight. I've certainly enjoyed myself. I hope you have as well. Thank you.